for joining all right ladies and gentlemen welcome back today we will be exploring some absolutely Fascinating, fascinating details about how Hashem runs His world, about, about this idea that you and I are not really in control, <laughs> just about ever. And we're going to study about how this awareness and clarity about this has the ability or can grant us the wherewithal to change our perspective on life and to find trust in Hashem. And that means living a life that is blissful, living a life that is calm and complacent. Well, maybe complacent is not a good word. A life that's free of anxiety a life of certainty, if only we will learn how to trust. We are right now in the third chapter of Shara Betochen. This is the eighth class in this particular chapter. And I guess a moment of, just a quick refresher would be in order. In the second chapter of the gate, Rabbeinu Bachaya enumerated seven criteria by virtue of which we would be comfortable placing our trust in a would-be provider. Now, the first time he lists the seven, he's not specifically talking about God, just a provider. And then he goes on to demonstrate how all of these qualities are actually found specifically within the reality of divinity. In fact, that's how God chooses to describe himself to us through his prophets, also known as the Tanakh scripture. In the third chapter, Rabbeinu Bechaya here makes a very, very pointed shift. No longer is he speaking about this cerebrally, but rather he's taking these ideas and applying them to us in a very personal, in a very emotional and heartfelt way. That ultimately is the methodology through which we can change ourselves. You see, ideas, they're proverbially speaking out there. 
there's concepts, there's ideas, there's, there's things that can excite and stimulate our mind, but they don't necessarily change us. In fact, oftentimes knowledge can be something that we're aware of, but aloof or indifferent to. The essence of Yiddishkeit is to take those ideas and to translate them into the realm of feeling or emotion so that ultimately they serve to catalyze our actions. Betachen is very much within the realm of our emotions. It's a touchy-feely thing. Do you trust God? That's not an idea. That's a feeling. Are you anxious? That's a feeling. Concerned, worried, fearful, certain, calm. Those are all feelings. They're all within the realm of our emotions. In order for us to be able to achieve success in building betochen, it's got to be taken out of the idea realm and brought into the personal relating realm. What does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? This is the approach we took in understanding the third chapter of Shara Betochen, and specifically in grappling with the seeming shift in order where Rabbeinu Bachaya is listing the same seven criteria but not using the same order as he did previously. That's not a mistake. There's a reason. There's got to be a very, very good cause for Rabbeinu Bachaya making that switch, and we've posited it over the last couple of episodes that has everything to do with the emotional approach so that this resonates with me. And so, we are now at the conclusion. The seventh criteria, which is incidentally the first of five requisites or five <laughs> different areas we're going to learn how to develop in order to build our betochen. Vashvi, and the seventh quality. It's fascinating to point out that this seventh quality was previously in the second chapter, Hachamishis, the fifth quality. Not only is it in a different order, as the Marpil and Nefesh points out, but it's actually very different in its definition. It's not saying quite the same thing. In the second chapter of Shara Betochen, where we spoke about the fifth quality, Rabbeinu Bachaya there emphasized that the provider would have to be there for you always. He's totally committed, totally devoted, always there for you. Maybe you trust your parents. They've always been there for you. From the time you were born, they've always been there for you. Maybe they haven't. But remember, in the beginning of the second chapter, Rabbeinu B'chayah is describing to you the kinds of things that would lead you and I to trust another. Now, he's going to make the case that it's not only a question of who's been there for you throughout, which in different words could be termed a track record. Somebody who's always done good things for you, well, you place your trust in them. Why? 
you have a good experience. You have a track record. You do business with a trusted company. You enjoy going to your trusted restaurant. <laughs> I once asked somebody who frequents restaurants very often what his favorite restaurant in our city was. And when he told me which one it is, I, I was surprised because it didn't have a name as the best restaurant. I'm not much of a restaurant goer. And I said to him, really, is that the best? He said, I'll tell you what's best about it. I said, what's that? He says, I know exactly what to expect and I get exactly what I expected. He says, whatever dish I order, it's always made the same way. Whereas, and he listed another restaurant to me, which at times really excels, but they're not reliable. People like reliability. Somebody who's not reliable is certainly not somebody going to trust. The more reliable a provider is, the more trust they earn from you. Rabbeinu Bechaya says the ultimate example of trust would be the provider who's always been there for you. Always. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says he's misyached b'hanhogas ha'bayteyacholov. Mitchilas ha'vyasi, from the very beginning. Gidule, his maturation is growing up from his childhood through adolescence, through young adulthood and even old age. Now, if you look in the commentaries, for example, if you look in the Marpel and Nefesh, back in the second chapter, and we learned this together previously, he says that this business of always being there for you is, for example, Yochid Bahanagose. Not only has this provider always been there for you, this provider was the only one always there for you. So they have a track record of singular care and concern, attentiveness, and following through. Tatoi Valavonon goes into something similar, although he adds something interesting and nuanced. He adds, Mashgiachalov Proteus. He's not only always there for you, he's there for you every tiny step of the way in all those details. Here in the third chapter, as we're concluding our address to the emotional audience of a person, Rabbeinu Bechaya is going to speak about Hashgacha Pratis, the extraordinary and profound idea of divine design, which is frankly, as you'll discover, totally mind-boggling. It doesn't just mean that God knows everything that's happening. It doesn't just mean that God maintains control in his world at all times and can always intervene. But as we will learn, it means that God, through his knowledge and awareness of the whole world, is actually bringing everything into existence and all of the innumerable, seemingly infinite details that are happening at the same time are actually happening in concert harmoniously, all contributing towards the ultimate destiny, the purpose of the creation of Hashem's world. Nothing is random. Nothing is at will. And as we'll learn, none of it can actually be controlled or changed by you, me, or anybody else. So this is a, it's a shift not only in numbers, not only have we moved from number five to number seven, 
The idea here is being presented in a radically different way. And of course, in the second chapter of Shara B'tochen, where Rabbeinu B'chayah speaks about this conceptually, he says, who would you trust? I mean, who do you trust? We tend to trust all kinds of people, providers. <laughs> the only one we forget to trust time and again is Hashem. And it's a terrible mistake. Because as we've learned, our betochen, our blissful reliance on God, our trusting attitude towards God, actually brings us the blessings we want. Here, Rabbeinu B'chaya is speaking to you specifically about God. And he's making the case that you should vest your entire trust in Hashem. As he continues, she is Atzlai. It should become clear to you. Please forgive me. Let me just fix something here. Thank you. Says Rabbeinu B'chaya, it must become clear to you. It must become something which you can see in a real clear fashion. If you're following along in the Kihad book, we're on page 65. I take a little exception with the translation here. They wrote, it should be clear. It doesn't say should be clear. It says, she is borer etz loy should be clear to you. This is very personal. It can't be clear out there. It can't just be an idea that we have clarity about. It has to be clear to us. If this isn't clear to us, we're not going to be able to walk down the beautiful pathway into the world of Betochen. Clearly in the Hebrew it says, etz loy is borer etz loy. That's the actual verbiage, clear to you. And clear to you is being said, interestingly, I, I did take a look in another contemporary translation. The, the art scroll renders it as, it should be clear to him. Maybe. I like you. This is personal. She is it becomes clear to you or to him. That there is for all that exists in this world. Now we need to translate these words. So the word etzem usually means essence. Sometimes etzem means bones or skeleton. You know, like the frame of something. Or like the bones that we have. Our own skeleton is called the etzem. And then there's the way that etzem becomes covered with sinew, meat, epidermis. You know, the way we are. Not just etzem, not just the essence, but our actual form that we presently occupy. So there's the etzem, and then there's the mikre. I don't know why, but here it's translated as those that are essential and those that are, and I'm not kidding with you, accidental. Accidental. I mean, we're learning about something that focuses on 
this idea that nothing is an accident, that everything is choreographed, everything is orchestrated, everything is designed. This has got to be the worst word we could use, accidental. Yikes. Now, truth be told, mikra does mean a happening. And sometimes when somebody says mikra nikra, stuff happens, they do mean accidental, which is wrongheaded. You know, as some certain wise people like to say, the, the word coincidence is just an 11-letter name for God. There are no coincidences. Why would Ibn Wachai use a word like that? Well, I don't think he does. I think it's an actual egregious mistranslation. But that's just my humble opinion. At any rate, so mistranslation um, in the, in the Kihat aside, I took a look in the art school version to see how they translated it. And they wrote things that are inherent or incidental. Slightly better, but really not on the mark. How do I know? <laughs> I know because it doesn't make sense. But I know because the Mepharshim, the commentaries on the Chavis Halvavis, on the, the Shara B'Tochen, say otherwise. They're a lot smarter than us contemporary people. So let's go, for example, to the Mar Nefesh. He says that kol habriyis v'hayitzurim, all created, all formed entities, means things that exist in any form. So these things are, are inclusive, are included in etzim mikra. All right. Why, 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 why does he include etzim and mikra to describe all of existence, every form and everything that is. So the Toiv Halavanan explains it in more detail. He says, whether it's davar hamitchadesh be'etzem, whether it's something which is brought into existence, like, for example, everything we know in quantum physics, all of which is a conglomerate, that's the nature of quantum physics. Everything is built of atoms, neutrons, protons, and so on and so forth. It's all brought together. And, and that includes not only our physical or tangible reality, but also the life force, that which powers the quantum physics, the energy, the life of all living things. It's also on some level a composite. So that's etzim. These are things that exist. I exist. You exist. And what's mikra? Mikra are the things that happen. In other words, nothing's an accident. I'm not an accident. You're not an accident. The place or space I'm occupying at this moment isn't an accident. And wherever you are, that's been orchestrated by Almighty God Himself. Now, we can be, if you will, placed in a certain arena, in a certain time, but the things that happen to us, are they also choreographed? Bina Bahai says, yes. <laughs> yes, everything. Everything is by divine design. Etzem and Mikre, which means all the moving pieces, all the players, all the props, that's all etzem. That's all things that are, things that exist. Mikre is their velocity, their movement. That's not a thing. You can't, like pick up or put down the velocity of something. But everything that is can experience velocity, assuming it's not rooted into the ground. 
than if it isn't velocity, it can experience some kind of expansion, some kind of growth. Even things which are dormant, inanimate, do experience some kind of swelling and shrinking. None of those things are actually in hand or tangible. They're happenings. The point that's being made to us is that all of the objects and all movement or occurrence that they're involved in is all by the hand of Hashem. I don't know why that was so hard to translate. That's what etzim and mikra means. The Torah Levanon is pretty clear about that. And as the Marpil and Nefesh says, that's inclusive of reality as we know it. So everything has a gvul yodua. Everything has what we'll call a known border or boundary. It's got its own frame of existence. It has a clearly defined limit. So if it's velocity, it's a certain amount of movement. It's a certain amount of energy. If it's an object, it occupies a finite space. Everything is and is happening exactly the way Hashem wants it to in its own finite, limited way. V'le Yosef, v'le Yigra. Here, Rabbeinu Bechaya makes a very, very bold statement. He says, you can't add nor subtract. Amasha gozar habayri is barich. You know, people could talk about the laws of physics. You can't change the laws of physics. You can work with the laws of physics. You can't change the laws of physics. That would seem to be true. All of this is created by Hashem. So the laws or limitations of physics as we know them, or other realms of possibility which we have yet to discover, all of this is by virtue of Hashem's design. And just as you can't change the laws of physics, you can't change something's limitation, you can't change something's definition, you can't change the scope of something's impact, you can't magnify or minimize. As they say, it is what it is. You can't change it. Let me use a, a simple euphemism. People say that the ostrich, when it's in trouble, puts his head in the ground. But that doesn't really help or change anybody or anything. Ignoring circumstances doesn't mean they aren't so. So putting your head in the ground is a dumb thing to do. You're still exposed, you just don't see it. So a person would say, don't be an ostrich. Don't put your head in the sand. Do something about it. Take hold of the situation. And what if the situation is beyond the scope of control? You can't stop a hurricane. You can't rein in a tornado. What do you do? Well, you can try to beat the odds. You can try to implant yourself or find shelter in something that maybe is strong enough to withstand these forces of nature, quote unquote whether it means to put yourself into a basement or find a cleft under a rock, I, I don't know. You can't change the circumstances. You can try to react to the circumstances. Rabbeinu Bechaya tells you that just as you can't control a hurricane or change the weather, just as the laws of physics can't be superseded, you can't go beyond 
or beneath the reality. Ignoring the reality doesn't change the reality. It is, as they say, what it is. So too, you must realize, I must realize, it must become clear to us that everything in the world is under Hashem's dominion, each and every single iota and second of its existence. And nothing happens by happenstance beyond the control of Hashem. This is true Bekamusai, and it's also true Be'echusai. It's true on what we're going to call a quantitative level as well as a qualitative level. The Marple and Efesh gives us some simple language to expand on these words. He says, Kamusai, the quantity. He says, Kamashanim for example, an increment of time. <laughs> time. Time can't be longer or shorter. When we say time is relative, what's relative is how you experience time, how you view time, how you feel during that time. But the time, there isn't a longer or shorter hour. You can say, wow, that hour flew by. Sure, you were having a good time. This hour is never ending. Yeah, you're miserable. But the hour isn't longer or shorter. The question is what you make of it. So a person will say, well, I can't change the quantity of time, for example, the amount of days God's given me, but I can change the quality of the time, how I'll fill, how my days will be filled. Not really, says the Marple and Nefesh. The truth is, the quality, how it will be. Can't change that. You can't change zmanoi. The echot, the quality, Marpel and Efer says could refer to something, to the, the qualitative advantages, distinctions, or definitions of a particular reality or object. He said, Zmane is Be'ez Zmane, what time it will be. We don't get to choose our favorite time in history to live. <laughs> in fact, the Creator knew in His infinite wisdom that you and I belonged in the 21st century. We belonged in this present reality, right here, right now. Because that's the mission Hashem has carved out for us. That's, that's the unique area, space and time, that matches perfectly with our life's destiny. So you can't change Zmanai. You can't change time. You can't change Mekoyma. You can't change space. Which space you'll be in. You can't change all these things. Now, this sounds like we have absolutely no control whatsoever. <laughs> we sound like a bunch of guided missiles. That's a big problem. Because if we have no control whatsoever, how can we be held culpable for the things we did wrong? How can we be rewarded for the things we do right? We have no control. The marble and Nefesh is quick to point out he quotes the Gemara in Mesechah's Brachas here. This is a critically important statement of our sages. It's found in the Gemara, and I'll take you into the Gemara in a moment. We'll read it together. Everything is in the hands of heaven. Everything, with one big exception. Reverence, awe. Literally, fear of heaven. Respecting Hashem. Let's take a look at the Gemara itself for a moment. So this Gemara is found in Mesechet Brachot, and 
It's a teaching from the Tana, the sage Rabbi Hanina. The Gemara has recorded a, a series of teachings from Rabbi Hanina. Now Tal tells us, here's something else Rabbi Hanina taught. This is on Daf Lamed Gimel, Amid Beis. It's on page 33 of Mesechet Brachot, side B, near the end. The Omer Rabbi Hanina, Hakoil Bideshomayim, everything is in the hands of heaven. So it's not Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar's idea. <laughs> the Gemara says this. But the Gemara also says, Chutz, with the exception. With the exception, Meyiras Shomayim, of reverence, so offer heaven. Shenemar, for it is stated, and this is the words of Moshe Rabbeinu. At this point, as Rashi and the Chumash explains to us, Moshe Rabbeinu has just finished criticizing very, very harshly, I might add, the children of Israel for the devastating sin of building an idol, a golden calf, just days after receiving the Torah and experiencing the most extraordinary mass revelation from God. Moshe Rabbeinu also criticizes the people for a mistake they made much, much later on, after the passing of Aaron and the dissipation of the clouds of glory that served to protect the Jewish people and bring them honor, when those clouds dissipated, our enemies, the Amalekites, attacked. This so demoralized the people that although they were already 40 years after receiving the Torah, they retraced their steps and began to go back to Mitzrayim. This is an act of rebellion and sedition that is on par, almost, with the sin of the golden calf. Once again, the tribe of Levi were the ones who rallied around Moshe Rabbeinu and saved the day. And Moshe Rabbeinu criticizes the Jewish people very harshly. Yet, despite all of this criticism, as Rashi tells us, Moshe Rabbeinu says, hey, you're still standing. You did all these things that were wrong-headed, and yet Hashem still loves you. And the only thing that God asks of you, says Moshe Rabbeinu, is ki'im liyira just that you should revere. The Pasa goes on to say, which, what is the meaning of revere? What is the meaning of respect? Hi God, I respect you, please don't bother me. That's ridiculous. If you respect somebody, you treat them respectfully. <laughs> if, you, if you disparage somebody, ignore somebody, don't respond to somebody, but I respect them. That's an oxymoron. In fact, that's fake news. If you really respect somebody, then you behave in a respectful manner. We're not talking about our buddy, this is God. So what would respect for God look like? Well, Moshe Rabbeinu says, respect for God is going to look like, and I'm quoting verbatim, leleches, to walk, bechol drachov, that you should walk in God's ways. You know, try to emulate, or be God-like. La'ava, say, that you should love Hashem. And you should worship, be subservient, committed, devoted, dedicated to fulfilling the will of Hashem. With all your heart and with all your might, all your soul. So that's the meaning of Hashem's respect. So everything, Rabbi Hanina said, is in heaven's hands with the exception of Yerushalayim because that's what God's asking of you. God's not asking you to change the weather. 
God's not asking you to fix all of the world's problems. God is asking you to behave as you should. And to be godlike is to fix the problems that are at hand. You know, the issues you can actually do something about. Mahu Rachum, as he is merciful, you should be merciful. As he is kind, you should be kind. As he is gracious, you should be gracious. Reach out to another in love. Be concerned with the welfare of another. Don't live a selfish life in which you just ask what's in it for me. Instead, ask what am I supposed to do to make the world a better place? And it means to love Hashem. And it means to follow Hashem's rules. Yes, to do that which is written in the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch. That Hashem asks of you. Let me share with you the words of Rashi in his commentary on the Gemara in Mesechet Brachot. He says, Kol haba al ha'odam. Everything that comes a person's way. It's all in God's hands. I didn't choose to live in Toronto. It was ordained that I would live here. But I am choosing to share words of Torah with you now. And incidentally, the harder I work at it, or the more difficult it might be for me sometimes, the more rewarding it is in Hashem's eyes, the more it's valued and appreciated. We don't get to choose the circumstances, but we get to react to them. And we get to behave in a way that is righteous, holy, pious, spiritual, respectful of Hashem. So Rashi says, it's all Kigoyni says, here's some simple pedestrian examples. Whether you be tall or short. Oni, usher, whether a person is going to be poor or rich. You thought it had everything to do with your work ethic. It actually doesn't. Why go to work altogether? Well, I'm so glad you asked. We'll be talking about that later on. Rabbi Nebuchai will address this question because in view of what we're learning, it's a fair question to ask. No, you shouldn't sit on your hands. You do have to go to work and make every normal, say, reasonable effort. But you have to know that in the end, despite those efforts, if you're successful, it's because Hashem chose that you should be successful. And if you're not, it's not because you're a bad person. It's because Hashem, for whatever reason, chose that your destiny in life shouldn't be amongst the billionaires or millionaires or even the comfortable. So Rashi says, these things are not in your hands. Chacham, shaita, whether you're wise or an utter fool. Love on shacher, whether you have a light complexion, dark complexion, whether you like your skin color or don't, it doesn't make a difference. Hakol bidei shomayimu. Whether you're fair and attractive or not is irrelevant. I mean, it may be very relevant to you, but you can't change things like that. That is in heaven's hands. What's relevant for us? Meaning, what does life call upon us to do? 
avol tzaddik v'rosha. But whether I'll be righteous or choose to live a life that's wicked, ah, anybody they shall That does not come from heaven. That is in your hands. Et zeh mosar biyodev shal adam. This was given into the hands, proverbially speaking. It was given into the realm of possibility, the range of wherewithal for you, for you to choose. V'nosan lefanov shnei drachem. Hashem places before you two pathways. V'hu yivchalei. And you should choose the pathway. Choose the road that says, Yirat Shumayim. I'm going to live a respectful life, respect for my Creator, which means respect for everything created in His image, which means respect for the world and universe that He brought into existence. Respect is, it's not about me. I have to respect others. <laughs> Imagine if our civilization, our society today, instead of obsessing over my rights, my things, what I deserve, my entitlement, instead if we would tell our children about the responsibilities they have, about the respect that they should be living with for God, for others, for the planet. Imagine what a different world we'd have. That's Yiddishkeit, friends. <laughs> That's what Yiddishkeit is all about. So you can't choose circumstances that are beyond or outside the orbit of Yirat Shemayim. But if it's part of Yirat Shemayim, if it has something to do with serving Hashem, you get the freedom to choose. Otherwise, your choices are actually not yours. You're just influenced to do things in a certain way. You're almost coerced to do things in a certain way. The clothing that you or I are wearing right now we think it's the clothing we chose, but if one could put all the factors of life that brought us to this very moment, it might even be predictable of which article of clothing we would wear, but this is the way Hashem ordained it to be. Why that's relevant is actually beyond fathomability. It boggles our mind that it's not something the human being can, is able to assimilate into his own, so to speak, understanding of things. But we believe that everything with the exception of that which is connected to our relationship with God. Relationship with God in English is called religion. Or that's what it should be called. So religion or relationship with God, also known as respect for the Creator, that's in your hands. That's in my hands. Nothing else is. You know, it's interesting, um, before we go on, I'll just point out to you that the Khatam Sofer comments that reverence for heaven itself is actually a gift. And he brings copious proof for this. He brings, for example, the David HaMelech prayed that he be granted Yerat Shemayim. There's a beautiful story told about the Hasidic leader, Reb Chaim of Tzanz, who used to pray every day to be granted the Yerat Shemayim, the sense of awe and reverence with which Maimonides, the Rambam, lived. And the story goes that one night his prayers were answered and he fell to the ground in such awe, in such utter, overwhelming sense of fear and trepidation that he couldn't even move. And so he prayed that this level of intense Yerat be lifted from him because, because he couldn't handle it. That's because, in truth, 
humbling oneself before Hashem can't be given from on high. It has to be nurtured and developed by us. There's things that come from on high and things that are brought up from below. Yira, all reverence, respect, that's one of those things. That's why in the schematic of the patriarchs, Abraham represents actualization of bringing forth of an awareness of God. But Isaac digs wells. Isaac represents the work of transforming that which is below. That can't be given from on high. It would just kind of zap you or overwhelm you as Reb Chaim of Tzanz was. So the Chatam Sofer says that the intention of Rabbi Hanin in this teaching is that the choice to want Yeras Tramayim is given to us. He says, yes, it's possible that the actual sense of awe and respect and reverence for Hashem is, is a gift, but, but it's a gift you have to want. It's a gift you have to yearn for. And that is in your hands. That is within the scope of our actions. What Hashem expects from you and I. So we have kind of this... Um, we're gaining clarity in, in the, this, this incredible idea, this idea that everything that happens in the world is happening because it's choreographed from a higher place. And none of us can do anything about that. Ein marbe lamasha gozar You can't add or you can't increase that which Hashem has decreed to be minimal. You can't go counter, so to speak, to that. You cannot diminish or decrease that which Hashem has decreed to be significant. Something to be translated very strangely over here. Translates that as subtract from the limit that God has decreed, or from that is God decreed to be many. I don't know. Okay, he says here, decrease from that which God to be decreed of a great amount, great volume. You can't delay something whose time has come, something whose that's supposed to unfold if it's been decreed to arrive early. And you can't hasten. You can't uh, kind of precipitate something that has been decreed to happen at a later time. You can't artificially advance it. It is what it is, as they say. You can't bring it to maturation, make it ripen faster. You have to let what they call Nature, take its course. A coincidence, that's a euphemism. All of this is in the hands of Hashem. Not only when your fruit or grain will ripen, not only when somebody else will mature or come to realize, but in fact, the truth is that everything in this world happens at a precise time. And you and I can't accelerate that process or slow it down. It's all choreographed from a higher place.
in the commentary of the Marpil and Nefesh, he says, nobody, you cannot, nobody in any way can increase something which Hashem decreed should be more, should be minimized. Whether it's Shnechayev, can't live longer than you're supposed to live. Or you can't make more money than you were supposed to make. It's all going to be exactly the way it's supposed to be. Because that's what Hashem says. Here's a cute little story that happened when I was a kid, maybe 13 or 14 years old. We were staying at my grandparents for Yom Tov. And it was a three-day Rosh Hashanah, as I remember. Maybe this was, maybe I was 15 or 16 already. At any rate, my grandmother woke up in the morning and the refrigerator wasn't working. And she was beside herself. She had like my cousins and people staying in the house. We would, we would like pack the house and like the kids would all sleep on the floor. And three days of Yom Tov, she had lots of meals to serve us and the refrigerator was dead. My grandfather was frantic, and he went to show in the morning, and he met a local electrician. This is in the Crownite section of Brooklyn. His name was Mr. Avi Beidelman, Olav Shalom. And uh, my Zaydi said to him, oh, Mr. Beidelman, I need your help. The refrigerator is not working. Can you please make a service call? He said, you know, it's Russia. I said, I know, but like it's three days, and need the food. Anyway, the electrician was kind enough to make a service call, and he checked this and checked that. <laughs> and he realized somehow the refrigerator plug had fallen out. And so he just plugged the fridge back in. And then his service charge, whatever it was, I don't, I don't remember what it cost him, $100 for a visit by an electrician, a service charge, whatever it was, it was, and my Zadie paid it. And I remember him walking out the door, and my Zadie says to me, you see, it was Erev Rosh Hashanah. A person's parnasa is decreed from the beginning of the year. Hashem knows that I had made $100 too much and Mr. Beidelman made $100 too little. And so Hashem had to make sure <laughs> that the $100 moved from my bank account to his bank account. So he caused somebody to somehow dislodge a plug. Now that's a Torah, Yiddishkeit way of viewing life. Everything that happens, happens for a reason. A person like that has no anxiety. A person like that has no frustration, no anger, chas v'shalom. He knows Hashem did what's best for him, and it was best. It worked out perfectly. This is kind of what Rabbeinu Bachai is getting at here. He says, You can't minimize, you can't accelerate. If it was decreed from on high that it will be such, so take if it's going to happen now. It's going to happen tomorrow. Adam writes a person says, "I can see this happening. I don't want it to happen today. I don't want it to happen tomorrow." you can't change anything from the way God ordained it to be. And if you can change it from today to tomorrow or to next week, then that's the way God ordained it to be. Actually, it's a mind-boggling concept. And yet, at the same time, within this theology, the spiritual theory, idea of God controlling everything down to the nanosecond, the tiniest iota, we still have the freedom to choose 
if it's Yiddishkeit, if it's relationship with God, also known as religion related. How phenomenal is that? And that's the story of life. As the Tosfus Yomtev mentioned, and we quoted this, I think in a, we learned it in a previous episode, he said that this idea of Bechira, this concept that we have the freedom to choose, is the very foundation of everything Yiddishkeit represents. If it's a mitzvah in the Torah, we have to have the ability to choose. Incidentally, that's true even if we have a precondition that makes us lean in a certain direction. We still have the freedom to choose. It doesn't make it easy, but it makes it rewarding. You know, this week's Torah portion speaks about Jacob, Yaakov, and Esau. We read about Esau having a predisposition to idolatry and Yaakov having a predisposition to holiness. One seems to yearn for things that are God or godly and the other seems to yearn for things that are atheistic or in denial of the Creator. They say, hey, one second. If Esau was pre-programmed, why do we call him Esau HaRasha? Why do we call him wicked? Why do we call Yaakov a tzaddik? They would just acting out the roles assigned to them. The Rebbe once explained this in a stunning way. He says the Rambam, Maimonides, in his commentary on the Mesechet Avot called Shemayin Prokim, the Rambam narrates for you two possibilities in life. He says there's something called the Chassid HaMa'ula, the perfectly pious individual, the person who is almost predestined to serve Hashem. He's really good at it. Oh, he still has a choice to make. Firstly, the question is, should he serve Hashem to the fullness of his possibility as per the entire range of his acuity or not? And if he chooses not, well, that's a sin of omission, not utilizing the gifts that Hashem gave you. Imagine you had the ability to save ten lives and chose to save just one. Would that make you a hero? Well, to the life you saved, yes, but how about the nine lives lost because you couldn't be bothered? It was too strenuous. And this is all in the realm of a chassid hamula. Then he calls there, he says, there's another kind of person. And he is called Hamit Gaber al Yitzro, the person who overpowers his inclination. This is a person who is placed on a path of enormous personal resistance. He has a really difficult time doing the right thing. But when he chooses to do the right thing, he surges forward. You know, think of that 10-speed bike. Do they still make those? <laughs> you pedal, and the harder it is to pedal, the faster you go, because the more you increase the tension and the velocity. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about with Asaph. Turns out, in fact, that Asaph had the potential of being a far greater tzaddik than Yaakov which made him a far greater Russia, much more wicked because he chose another path in life, unfortunately. And the truth is, that's why Yitzchak kept digging into Esau, trying to reveal his remarkable, incredible potential. Only Rivka, unfortunately, realized it wasn't to be. And so by the time Esau was a teenager, she focused her attention on Yaakov, trying to bring his strength forth 
trying to get him to think outside the box, trying to get him to reach beyond his comfort zone, which Yaakov finally does when it comes to receiving the blessings. That's what we're talking about here when we say the freedom to choose. That's the meaning of our call, Bidei Shemayim Chutz. Everything's in heaven's hands with the exception of Yirat Shemayim. But Yirat Shemayim, that's in our hands. Otherwise, it's all in God's hands. Don't even bother, as they say. In the Neder Bakredesh, commenting on these words, Valoi Makdim, you cannot accelerate or bring forward something which is only destined to happen later. Ein shum mesavev zulas There is no cause for anything other than the Creator. No cause for anything. And therefore nothing can change what Hashem has ordained. I think that sounds right. I mean, aren't there things that happen? Aren't there just like dynamic realities that unfold? One did something and something did something else and something caused something else. But there's so many causes. What do you, they all just happened? By design? Says And that which will happen in this manner a matter that seems, you know, to be caused by something else, other moving pieces. This also was decreed. This was decreed by the Creator from the very beginning of creation. How do you, how do you wrap your mind around that? You don't. <laughs> Incidentally, Rabbeinu Bahaya this time didn't say, He didn't say, you should know. This is more about it becoming clear to you. Some of this is beyond the fathomability of a human, but it can be clear to us. I could say, it is clear to me Hashem runs the world. I can't tell you how, but it's clear to me. Once that becomes clear to you, you're on the road to achieving success in betochen, to living with certainty. Ela shalakol Everything comes from God and everything has a reason and there's a reason behind the reason and a cause behind each effect. And ultimately, all of it, all of it is choreographed by Almighty God Himself. So we need to have a little bit of explaining to do here. Let's take a look in the Menoyah Chalavavis first. He says, what does Rabbeinu Chaya mean to say, and when things happen? What does that mean? He says, when there seems to be novel or new things happening in the world. Naturally, if you ask the experts, they would have told you it couldn't happen this way. Well, how did it happen? Nobody's really sure. It kind of just happened. For example, says the Menachalavavis, you have tzmicha satvua. You have the growing of grain, maturation of grain. You have fruits that seem to mature unnaturally. 
And so much so that a person would say it's a miracle. This is miraculous. It, it, it's not following the rules of physics or the laws of nature. So Maner Chalvava says, Rabbeinu Wichai would say to you, Aha, uh-huh. Huan Nigzer. That was all chosen. The Maner Chalvavis makes a tantalizing suggestion about the root source of all this in the words of our sages. He says, there's a Gemara which is found in the Sugya, on the topic of Matan Torah, Mesechet Shabbat. It's page 88, Daf And The Gemara speaks about Yom Hashishi, the sixth day of creation, which is, uh, has some kind of specific, it's a definitive item, Hashishi. What's the sixth day? And he says, the sixth day is a euphemism. It's an allusion to the sixth day of Sivan. Because the Gemara says that you must know that Hisna, Tanai Hisna, Kaddish Baruch Hu, Akol God created the entire world conditionally. And the condition was that the Jewish people would accept upon themselves the Torah. Nasa Venishma, you know, that great big event that happened at Sinai, where we were willing, ready to commit, to obey, to, to follow Hashem's word, and then to do our best to understand it. And everything, all of creation, up until that moment, hinged on us saying yes. So this kind of gives us a window to a perspective, a new perspective that everything that happens, it could be thousands of years have elapsed, but all of the things that have happened up until that moment are all leading in that direction. That's the meaning of Hashgacha Pratis. That was, that's exactly what Rabbeinu B'chaya is trying to tell us. In the words of the commentary called Neda Bakredish on Rabbeinu B'chaya, he says, look in the Manoach we just did. And then he says that this, this is the, the fifth idea we talked about previously, as we've discussed. That Hashem is supervising engaged at all times with every one of us. And that that which happens decades or centuries earlier directly leads us to this moment. That's why people say, and it's tongue-in-cheek, but kind of true, that the most important moment in history is right now. What you and I will do right now is what's most important right now because we got here and now by virtue of everything that's happened in the past. The future is yet to come. The past has already gone by, but right now we have a choice to make. You can choose to continue listening and to absorb these ideas. I can choose to continue investing every ounce of koyach and creativity to share these ideas with you or not. And all of the things that have happened in the past that have led us to this particular moment have led us to this moment so that we will make the right choice. (laughs) Talk about pressure. We have a whole world history that has brought you and I together right here, right now. 
so that we do the right thing. The Neder B'Kadosh says like this, let me make it simple for you. Here's the rule. It all follows the original primordial knowledge of God. And if something just happens, you know, Murphy's luck, happenstance, coincidence. By virtue of the way we see things, from our knowledge, it seems to be, have been accelerated or delayed or more or less than it should have been. Yes, it changed. Because that's the way Hashem wanted it to be. Do you know what's happening in the world right now? Exactly what Hashem wants to be happening right now. Except for you and I is misbehaving sometimes. That's not what Hashem wants per se. Hashem is asking us to choose otherwise. And yet, despite the choices we make, ultimately Hashem has ordained everything. And within that, He carves out space for us to make our mark. It's actually quite mind-boggling. The things that seem to happen because of a circumstance or a situation or in response to challenges or hardship, these are the things we call a miracle. This miracle has already been programmed, so to speak. It's already been put into the order of cause and effect. idea. And Betchilis idea says the Nedabar Kedesh means Sheshet Yemei Bereshis. Imagine, if you will, that somebody programs a com- on a computer, you can program the lights to go on, lights to go off, for the next 50 years. Everything's programmed. Every little second is programmed. And you say, well, how can you anticipate things that might go wrong? No person can. But Hashem wrote the program until the end of time. Everything that's been husam beteva, everything that's been put into the laws of physics, everything that's changed from those laws, all of that, my friends, all of that is preordained. So how does that work with what we call a miracle? We'll actually talk more about that. Nedeb HaKadosh has some ideas about this, and we'll talk more about that, Bezrat Hashem, in the next episode. But first, let us better understand what we just said here. So essentially, where this, where this leads us to is that nothing is by happenstance, and everything ultimately happens with uh, a purpose. And this is the last idea that we're hearing about, because a person has already recognized, if he's been studying Rebbeinu Bahaya up till this point, that no one can help him or harm him. No person can help or harm themselves unless Hashem wills it to be so. And so now we come to the conclusion that everything, everything is in the hands of Hashem. Everything is preordained by God. Hashem alone creates the person, manages his whole life, your development, your, your, your wealth, your health, your success, your failures, 
everything is being preordained by God. And because our entire existence is defined by the limits that Hashem has placed on us, and because it's impossible for any of us or any force of the created reality to break outside the Creator's will, is this not then something that will lead us into a life of betochen, of trust in Hashem, once it becomes clear to us? So let's talk about this. Let's talk about you know, things happening, miracles, salvation, saving. You know, in the Art Scroll edition, they do something um, kind of predictable, right? So it's, um, there it says that, and I'm, I'm quoting, an intricate chain of events may sometimes unfold over a very long period of time and in many different places. But ultimately results from that chain that was foreseen and planned by Hashem from the very outset. Right? That's the chain of events. And whoever put this volume together illustrates it with a classic example that's called the Pura Miracle, which actually is a series of surficially unconnected events, seemingly unconnected events that take place over a period of nine years. <laughs> the Megillah didn't like, happen just like that. That's why the Baal Shem Tov thought you have to read the Megillah in order, in order to fulfill the Megillah's. I mean, that's a Mishnah that the Baal Shem Tov said, though. You have to read the Megillah, not Lama Freya, as something that happened once upon a time, but rather read it in a dynamic way. But the Mishnah says you can't read the Megillah, you can't read chapter 6 before you read chapter 2. Otherwise, you miss the point. And Baal Shem Tov adds, you can't read that as an ancient story. You have to read that as our story of today. The celebration of Purim and the story of the Megillah is the story of the Jewish people today. It is the celebration of our eternity and our special relationship with Hashem. So going back to the story of Purim, you have, it opens with this grand ball that ends in the execution of Vashti, the queen of the day. And when we move to the coronation of Esther and the events that brought that about, an assassination plot by Big Son and Seresh, and that goes all the way forward to a seemingly random, sleepless and Shushan night for the king, which is a full five years later, five years after the plot. And Haman, the wicked Haman's arrival at the palace, just at the moment the king decided that he would reward Mordechai. And Haman is coming to give permission to hang Mordechai. So Mordechai, all of a sudden, is put into the situation that Haman envisioned for himself, and it was, as we say, everything was turned inside out. Now, here's my problem with uh, Mr. Artscroll. It's kind of an obvious thing to say, but none of the Mepharshim say this. We believe they were a little smarter than we are. Let me tell you what one of the Mepharshim does say. The Toiv Halavonan does use a story to illustrate this. But it's his own story. It's a parable. 
Why would he use a parable when he has a real-time story, an event that everybody's familiar with? The answer, I think, is that it's entirely wrong-headed to quote the story of Purim to make the point here, because the story of Purim is the national story of the Jewish people. Rabbeinu B'chayah's point is your individual stories, not just what happens to the nation, what happens to you individually. It's a big difference. I know a lot of people who believe in Judaism. They believe in the survival of the nation, of the faith, of the religion, of the culture. But they don't do any mitzvahs. And they don't live their lives in a way that's changed on a day-to-day fashion because of what they believe in. They do believe in it. They give a lot of money for the survival of the Jewish people. And they really get offended with things like anti-Semitism, apathy, intermarriage. These things bother them. Bother them to the point that they're ready to give away their time and their treasure. That's nice. But they can't be bothered to put on tefillin, eat kosher, put up a mezuzah, come to a minion. That's a problem. Because the Yetzirah has this very, very sophisticated strategy of telling you that as long as you care about the big picture, the details don't matter. It's not true. The details, they matter most. Rabbeinu Bahaya isn't talking about the Jewish people. He isn't telling you, trust that there will be a nation of Israel, an Am Yisrael, a Jewish people, an Am Ahiyahudi that survives forever. Yes, that will certainly be the case. We can have full betachen in that reality. Rabbeinu B'chaya wants you and me to have trust in Hashem for our own personal welfare. He wants us to be able to live with certainty. He's giving us the gift of actualizing Hashem's blessings in a manner that is punctuated with sweetness and goodness by virtue of the trust we develop in Him. It's powerful stuff on a personal level. You know, Maimonides Rambam makes this point in the book of Mor Nevuchim, in the third section, at the middle of the 51st chapter. He talks about this idea, we've mentioned this Mor Nevuchim before, the idea of mindfulness and how mindfulness is the superhighway through which God's blessings come to us. Although the Rambam himself doesn't mention the word or idea of betachen because it's more emotional and the Rambam speaks more in cerebral terms. It's in our hands. It's the result of what we choose. So the Rambam, Maimonides says that Hashem says to us, if you ignore me, I'll ignore you. If you turn your face from me, I'll turn my face from you. And all the hastarat panim, all the hiding or concealment, anachnu sibata, with reason. Anachnu we are throwing up that iron curtain. We are creating that impenetrable barrier. Hashem says, if you ignore me, I will conceal my face. But the end of the Pasuk says, I'll call Asher Asa. This is engendered by the evil that was done. And then the Rambam says eight powerful words. And I quote, Ve'ein Sophic, there is no doubt. Ki din ha yochid, ki din ha tzibur. 
that the rule that applies to the individual is not other or disparate from the rule that applies to the plurality of the Jewish people. If it's true for the nation of Israel, it must be true for us. It doesn't help to use the story of Purim as an overarching graphic illustration. We need to see in our mind's eye. It has to be clear to us how this could happen to you and to me, to us. So the Toi Valavonon, who incidentally was no chassid, was a far smarter than whoever was the editor of the art scroll. Smarter than anybody we know today. He was a, was a great Torah luminary, lived more than two centuries ago. He was not a chassid. <laughs> One of his disciples ended up going on a very wayward path that is counter to Torah and mitzvahs. But Rabbi Yisrael Halevi ben Moshe of Zamash was considered to be an outstanding luminary in the arena of Jewish philosophy and thought. He wrote this commentary called Teva Levonen, and he offers us what seems to be an original parable. I want to share this parable with you. I want to share with you a beautiful story that is told about the Baal Shem Tev. And then I want to conclude with an illustration of what Hashgacha Pratis really means, how we should view it, and what the result or conclusion of it should be. So let's begin with the Toiv Halavonin's Mashal. He says, okay, here's a parable. Sfina, a ship. Ratsu anasheha lifreis bayam. The sailors wanted to take it out to sea, or the passengers. When? Tomorrow. Ke'it machar. All of a sudden, the ruling powers, the mayor, the governor, the premier, somebody who had power, had some kind of framed the captain of the ship. A false accusation was leveled against him. So he was detained. The is his man. And in the midst of all this, there were battles at sea. Now, in the Kiat edition, he chooses to translate this as pirates. Okay, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe it was a blockade at sea. Maybe there was an actual war going on. I don't know how the Kahat translation came to the conclusion that this was pirates, but whatever. It doesn't really change. It's just that we saw his muscle. So pirates, war, whatever it was, there was violence at sea. And because of that, since they had been delayed, they didn't take the usual route because now there was violence at sea. But rather, they went a different route. Now, I guess this different route caused the boat to crash. The Nishbra, the boat breaks open. We have a titanic moment here. And this, these rocks were only in that uncharted part of the sea, but the only reason the captain took this route with unseen rocks, you know, think of the iceberg metaphor, was nothing above sea, but it was only beneath the sea, or very something, something very small protruding above the sea. It rips open the hull of the ship, and the ship sinks. 
ותבוא אנשיה. שיפ סינקס. והיום, נוסה ארגוס טון מטמונים, החליף היום. The sea then carries a chest of precious treasure to the seashore. While all this is going on, another שלטון, another person in power, framed another person. And on trumped up charges had him arrested. And this person had to run away to save his life. So he goes to a remote area of the seashore. And at that moment, he arrives at the seashore just as this chest washes up on the, on the beach. Unatoli, he takes it. Now again in the... Uh, In, in the Kiyat edition, he made him a righteous man. I, I guess he was a righteous man. Maybe he wasn't a righteous man. It doesn't say he was a tzaddik. The point is that that's the way Hashem ordained it. That person was going to get sustenance. Maybe it was something good as grandfather or grandmother did. I don't know. I don't know that he was righteous. I don't know why you have to invent things that don't say in the story. But this is the story. And now, the Teval Avanan depicts in detail this story, this tale that he's woven. And he goes through, he, he fully illustrates the point he wants to make. He says, listen, the fact that the captain was framed or falsely accused. So you have, at the end of the story, somebody finds buried, a treasure, not buried, but treasure that <laughs> sunk at sea and washed up on the shore. Somebody finds that treasure. Where did it all begin with? It began with ruling powers in a very different place who framed a sailor or a captain who this person will never know. Had they, had they set out to sea before the outbreak of the violence or the war, they never would have taken this dangerous route that's known to be rocky and that's why people avoid that route. And that was the cause of the sunken ship because the hull was ripped open by the rocks. So the first thing was the false accusation against the captain, which causes the ship's departure delayed, which causes them to take a different route. He says the second thing is, the outbreak of violence. Pirates? I don't know. Whatever. Violence broke out. The war. The third thing is, that it turns out that that buried treasure didn't sink to the bottom, but actually floated on the water. And not only does it float, but instead of it floating elsewhere, it goes inward, inland, to the beach. The fifth thing is that this other person was falsely accused or framed. And then he had to run away Hashem put it in his heart to escape. He escapes. And the seventh thing is that he happens to escape at exactly the time when the treasure washes on to the seashore. He says, Call Elohanyanim. Imagine the story was real. All these things, Lebobimikr, none of this happened. By happenstance, coincidence, accident, incidental. Hashem arranges it that every little one of these details happened exactly in the right time, precisely when it was supposed to. 
Now, it doesn't mean it's okay that those people drown or that those people drown so that somebody else should find the treasure. For whatever reason, Hashem ordained it. We cannot understand the ways of Hashem. Hashem ordained it that those people had to die at sea. It's tragic. It doesn't, if you will, justify what happened. We don't have to justify what God does. He is the judge of truth. This business of those people drowning, those people trying to avoid the hostilities, the violence, the war that had broken out at sea. Everything was by the decree of God. And everything happened exactly as it should. The Zekavonas Amachaber. Teodavonas says, that's what he means. And then when it seems that things don't happen precisely that way, that we see that things happen. One tiny detail leads to another tiny detail which leads to another tiny detail. And one detail and thousands of little details cascading by cause and effect from one another. He says, for example, as, as we find in this metaphor, all of it has a cause which leads to an effect, all of which is choreographed, all of which is in harmony, because every single life matters, in keeping with the harmony of global events. It's like a mind-boggling thing. Hashem arranged all this to happen, and it's rak miyadiyas Hashem yizbarach. I was just in New York a few days ago, and I bump into a fellow Chabad rabbi, who I never really spoke to before, I know who he is by face, by association. I, I know his family, his siblings are younger than me, but I, I know who they are. I can see by his face. I, I know even what his last name is. I, don't know, I still don't know what his first name is. And we were at the conference of Shluchim, and we, he says hello to me. And he says, um, does the name Joe, Joey Tannenbaum mean anything to you? I said, yeah, sure. Joey Tannenbaum was a major benefactor of Chabad in Ontario. And his uncle, Joe, was a major benefactor of the general Jewish community, and he built a very famous synagogue right here in Thornhill called Beit. And he says, I live in Tuscany, in Italy. He's a shliach in Tuscany. And he tells me how he ended up in Tuscany. And he says there's a niece of, of the Joe Tenenbaum, of the Tenenbaum family, who ended up moving to Tuscany. And she said to me, you know, my family's been very influential in Toronto, Jewish community, and the way they, they made their money originally was also like a stroke of divine providence. There was a, a great-grandfather who, I think, won some kind of lottery, but it was reported in the newspaper with an extra zero. So if he won $100, it was reported he won 1000 If he won 1000 it was reported he won 10000 or 100000 And then he went to the bank to get a loan, and they had read in the newspaper that he was the winner of this enormous amount of money, so they gave him this huge, huge loan, knowing that he was getting this amount of money, which he wasn't really getting because it was a printing mistake. And the family's fortune was built from that. So he says to me, you know, she told me that they were on, booked on a passage. They were like at the shipyard somewhere in Poland. And they were supposed to be coming to New York. And they encountered some other people from, from their original shtetl. And they said, where are you going? And so we're going to Toronto. And they go, really, where's Toronto? I said, in America, which of course it isn't. And they said, you know what? We don't have any friends in New York. Let's go to Toronto. So literally, on a whim, they decided to, I don't know how they changed their tickets, or maybe they hadn't bought 
booked passage yet, and they ended up going on a ship to Toronto. And, and, and this rabbi heard it from this descendant of the family who now lives in Tuscany, and the story comes to me just a few days ago, just Sunday, before I have to teach you this. And is that an accident? <laughs> like how literally our city has been enriched through the generosity and the benefaction of the Tenenbaum family in a way that has changed, and this is not an exaggeration, thousands and thousands of lives for the better by a split-second decision. Oh, we'll go to Toronto instead of New York. My dear friends, that's the meaning of everything being choreographed, of everything coming. Meyad Hashem. I want to finish with an amazing story. It's an amazing story because it really illustrates, it illustrates everything we've talked about, I think, in a way that you'll very much appreciate. So the story goes, it's a story that's recorded in the, in the Hasidic stories of Rav Folekan, called Shmuz Vesipurim. This is found in the beginning of the first volume, and it's called The Spanish Prince. But having done the research, I know that it couldn't be the Spanish prince. This has to be the Portuguese prince. And the story is that there was a noble in the area of the Inquisition. By the way, that's Spain and Portugal. I know because I'm descended from a Barbanel who was the minister of finance of Portugal. Portugal was once a very powerful country. In Brazil, they still speak Portuguese as they speak English in the States and Canada because these were the European countries that were colonizing. They were a major player, Spain, Portugal, England, and France, major colonizers, the ones who developed what we call today the Western Hemisphere. That's why the spoken languages are Spanish, Portuguese, English, and French. So anyway, he was, um, he was a hidden Jew in Murano, and he was discovered. And so the Inquisition apprehended him, tortured him, and extracted a confession, which wasn't untrue. He was really secretly observing Torah mitzvahs. And they convicted him of the heinous crime of still following the Jewish religion. The punishment for which was auto de fe, burned at the stake. Now this, this individual was a very high-ranking official. In fact, he was a close personal friend of the monarch himself. And so, the king tried to intervene, but he couldn't because the inquisition and the inquisitor was more powerful than the monarch himself. This is factually true. That's the way it was in Spain and Portugal. The king asked that the execution be stayed for a year. The Grand Inquisitor granted him this wish. He said, I need this person to help me work through affairs of state. And so the king continued to consult with him, and they continued to work together. And the king loved this person very much. And he kept pushing off what was inevitable. And after a year had gone by, he was again slated for auto de fe, and the king managed to stay the execution for a month. At the end of the month, the king managed to get the Grand Inquisitor to stay the execution for a week. And then, when the day arrived, 
he got him to stay the execution for yet another day. And then the day arrived. And by my research, I'm fairly certain that the date was November 1st, 1755. On the Christian calendar, the Feast of All Saints. Slated for auto de fe, huge crowds, throngs gathered in the city square to watch the burning of this hapless individual. Just at that time, a massive earthquake happened. The massive earthquake caused an outbreak of an enormous fire and a tsunami that later came. Many, many people died, and in the midst of all the chaos, this minister, this very, very prominent, convicted Jew, escaped. And then he made secret communication with the king, who enabled him to escape to leave Portugal. So this is the story in Falakad's book. But the interesting thing is that a little bit of Googling now, the story we know happens near the end of the Baal Shem Tov's life, as you'll see in a few minutes. Baal Shem Tov was nostalgic in the year 1760. In 1755, the great Lisbon earthquake impacted Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula, and Northwest Africa in the morning of Saturday, the 1st of November, Shabbos Kodesh, which in that year, 1775, was November 1st. And it happened at 9.40 local time, which makes perfect sense because these auto defaces would happen in the morning. This is, this is historical facts. In combination with subsequent fires, just the way the story is written here in Hebrew, and a tsunami, the earthquake almost totally destroyed Lisbon and the adjoining areas. Seismologists estimate that the Lisbon earthquake had a magnitude of 7.7. The earthquake strikes in the morning of November 1st, 1775, and the reports seem to indicate that the earthquake lasted for three and a half to six minutes. That's when this man escapes, causing fissures of five meters, 16 feet, to open in the city center. It's exactly where the auto de fe would have happened. Survivors rushed to the open space of the docks for safety, and they watched the sea receding. A plain of mud littered with lost cargo and shipwrecks. Forty minutes after the earthquake, a tsunami engulfed the harbor and the downtown area. Why did the king die? Because the king didn't want to be in Lisbon when this man was being executed, although that's not spoken of in the history books. The royal family escaped unharmed from the catastrophe. King Joseph I of Portugal and the court had left the city after attending mass at sunrise, supposedly fulfilling the wish of one of the king's daughters to spend a holiday away from Lisbon. I don't believe that. <laughs> Fits perfectly with the story. And then there's a whole fascinating thing that happens after. After this catastrophe, the king develops a fear of living within walls. His, um, his court is accommodated in a complex of tents and pavilions, and uh, the king's claustrophobia never wanes. Well, back to our unnamed Murano. 
is uh, he was a philosopher. And he began to do all kinds of investigation. And he said like this. This miracle of an earthquake striking precisely at the moment when he was set to be executed or burned alive, was it an accident? In other words, was the earthquake going to happen anyway? And it just coincidentally happened to strike at the moment he was being led to the stake? And he said, if that was the case, then he would choose to remain a hidden Jew. But if Hashem ordained this to be, to save him, then he said, I must repay Hashem and I will be a proud, openly observant Jew. And so he engaged with many, many of the German philosophers, the scholars of the day, always presenting the story as a hypothetical, never telling them that he was the protagonist. Nobody can give him an answer that he found satisfactory. Eventually, he heard about the Balshemtiv. The time is right on. So he travels to Ukraine, to Mezhibush. And when he comes to the courtyard outside the Balshemtiv's show, he sees a man who is known to us as Rebzev Kitsis, one of the outstanding disciples of the Balshemtiv. The Portuguese Murano, or prince, asked Rebzev, where is the Balshemtiv? The Balshemtiv pointed out, and as the story goes, it was he was standing in the stable area, or I guess, you know, like today's parking lot where people put the horses. He pointed the direction of the Balshemtiv's home. As he walked into the Balshemtiv's home, before he had a moment to say, hello, greet the Balshemtiv, the Balshemtiv said, Shalem Alecha, welcome, Murano Prince from Portugal. The man was totally amazed, caught off guard, because the Balshemtiv recognized him. He understood immediately this is a very holy man who has the ability to see things on a different level. And as he's thinking these thoughts, the Balshemtiv tells him, and as to your question, speak to my disciple, who you saw before amongst the horses. The prince left, and he began to speak to Rebzev Kitsis. Hypothetical, of course. The Balshemtiv's Talmud, Rebzev said, let us assume that from the beginning of creation, this earthquake was ordained to happen precisely this moment. That at this hour, on this day, in this month, and in this year, at this exact moment, there's going to be an earthquake. However, he said, the fact that your execution was stayed for a year, stayed for a month, stayed for a week, and stayed for another day, which lands you precisely on the moment of the earthquake, saving your life, that itself is the most stunning miracle. The prince was very much taken by this attitude or approach, totally 
out of the box. Everybody was talking about the earthquake. And Abzev says, look at it the other way. It's not the earthquake. It's the fact that you were being brought to the stake at that moment. And the story goes that the man did become a public Jew, and who knows if some of us are not amongst his descendants today. I want to finish by sharing with you stunning words from the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, in his description of what Hashgacha Pratis really looks like and how it should be seen and understood by us and the conclusion it should lead us to. In a mimer that was delivered by the Friedrich Rebbe in the year 1936, in honor of Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamos, beginning with the words, Al-Kain Yom Raham it's printed in Sefer Ramah Marim, Tafrech Sadek Vav, page 119 on the bottom and onward, he says, you have to understand that when we speak about Nivroim, Shalomata Kulum Nechalokim Bedalad Madregas, they're all divided into four categories. And here, the Friedrich Rebbe follows a well-trodden path of the early Jewish philosophers, identifying everything as either inanimate, vegetative, animal, or human. That's Chametz called. And he says, all of the inanimate reality, says a ribuy mini offer avoni matris, inanimate reality, has everything from soil to stone to metal. And we know that there's energy that's associated with things. I mean, quartz has a heartbeat. He says, there are many, many different kinds of the makeup, the nuclear physics of these things. And the same thing is chubitzameach with the vegetative world. The same thing is true with chai, with the animal world. The same thing is true of medaber. Each one of these species has a precise amount of, of energy that animates it. It's this kind of animation, it's this particular precise form of energy that enables it to exist as it exists and to proliferate as it proliferates. And all of this, he says, is by divine design. From the first moment it exists, until the last moment of its life, until the point of its decomposition. And he says, think of the vegetation in that fashion. Think of all the things from redwood trees to brushes, to, to, to moss, everything that grows. Herbs to grass. From grain to bushes. All of this, he says, there's a ribuy muflug, an incredible amount of species. Ilonis ribe otsum. It's an incredible, unbelievable amount of differentiation between all of these and the different species. And the way they are, the way they proliferate, the way they're able to keep growing. And he says, all of this. Some of the herbs have medicinal properties. Some have same moves, some have poison or poisonous or fatal properties attached to them. They look differently. They have different natures. Everything's different. And everything, he says, is given from the hand of Hashem. Everything is ordained by the hand of Hashem. And he says, from its very inception, until its final moment, every single animal, he says, every single piece of vegetation, whether its last moment comes by the point of the sickle, or whether it comes through being eaten by an animal or through its eventual rotting and decaying. Everything happens exactly the way Hashem wants it to be. And he says, this is because each and everything is powered by Hashem in a different fashion. 
as our sages tell us in the B'deshis Rabbo, there isn't a single blade of grass that doesn't have a spiritual altar, ego representing it. And that all of this is by divine decree. As is known in the Hashgacha Pratis, as the Mayreino HaBal Shem Tev, as the Baal Shem Tev told us, not only is every movement of every iota, of every figment of existence, something by divine design, but the Hashgacha Pratis, he says, in each of its tiny details, is all a part of God's master plan, including grass that lives and decomposes in a place where no human being ever steps foot. Every tiny shred of existence is by divine design. In a mimer that the Friedrich Rebbe delivered two years prior in 1934, which is found in Kontresim, Sefer uh, Kontresim, page Tess, he speaks about the idea of Ashgacha Protes. He says, in heaven and on earth, he says, all of these creatures, from the tiniest, lowliest creatures who live in the core of the earth or in the depths of the sea, from every blade of grass, all of this is Bashgacha Pratis, El Kol Yoni, Vatultulim. Not only is their existence, which is the etzem, as we talked about, but the mikra, what happens to them, including its rustling, blowing in the wind. He says, imagine that suddenly you're there and there's a blast of wind that blows forth and suddenly it dies down. What you don't realize is that all of that was Bashgach Pratis because that wind that blew dislodged a single leaf or it turned some leaves or maybe some straw blew and all of that is by divine design. Hashem arranges all of this and all of this is Bashgach Pratis. It's the middle of the summer. A bright, shiny day. Hashem is there. The sun is shining in its full brunt. It's full strength, full intensity. Suddenly there's a wind that blows. It moves, it rustles the leaves of the tree. And summer leaves are dislodged. And some straw blows off a rooftop. And now they blow on the ground. And suddenly the wind dies down. Suddenly the wind stops. He says, you should know that all of this is exactly What could that be? I don't know. It's beyond my fathomability. We can't imagine this. But in fact, it is so. And this is what you didn't believe. This is what the Baal Shem Tev taught us. So where does it lead us? And with this we'll conclude for today. The Baal Shem Tev, the Friedrich Rebbe says that this is what we're supposed to be contemplating when we begin our davening. That's why our davening talks about all the phenomenon of nature, and what's called psukhidism or verses of praise. And we say, All eyes are raised to you, Hashem, and you give each its sustenance in its proper time. And the Gemara in Ksubas tells us, not in their time, plural. This is something we learned from before, previously from Rabbeinu Bechaya. In its time. Hashem provides each with the sustenance it needs or you need exactly when you need it, as the Gemara says in Mesechet Kasubat on page 67. The knowledge, the awareness, the clarity about this. What does it do for us? This, my dear friends, this is the point of Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar. This is what fortifies 
what strengthens our betochen, our trust in Hashem. What's betochen? The Inyan HaBetochen, says the Friedrich Rebbe, in exactly the image that Rabbeinu B'chayi introduced it to us in chapter 2, is Menuchas Nefesh HaBeiteach, that the person who trusts in Hashem is at perfect peace and bliss. Your heart relies fully and blissfully. Hashem will do what is good and what is right. And what Hashem will choose for him. And exactly what Hashem can and will do is good for you. When a person contemplates all this and he knows that Hashem provides for everybody, Hashem provides for you and for me, and for all of us. And that's what Betachen is all about. Thank you so much for joining today. Please like, share, and get somebody else to subscribe today. Because if we can continue to spread this message about Betachen, I believe that with Hashem's help, we'll all be blessed for it. And hopefully, the strengthening of our faith in Hashem and our trust in Hashem will bring us into the blessed era of knowledge, a time in which we'll be able to actually visualize, see and know the presence of Hashem with the coming of Mashiach. Bimheira will be amenu amen. Please subscribe, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thanks again for joining, and have an amazing day.